Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to DelmarvaStudios.net. Marva Studios is proud to present Conspiracy Theories Investigated, hosted by George Hobbs. Conspiracy Theories Investigated takes a hard look at some conspiracy theories you may, or may have not heard of. The very definition of a conspiracy theory is an explanation for an event or situation that invokes a conspiracy by sinister and powerful groups, often political in motivation, when other explanations are more probable. The term by definition has a negative connotation, implying that the appeal to a conspiracy is based on prejudice or insufficient evidence. We gather all of the facts, present them to you, and let you, the listener decide if it is fact, or fiction. Feel free to send us your thoughts, suggestions, and your own theories, to DelmarvaStudios@mail.com. You can also follow Delmarva Studios on Twitter, at Delmarva Studios. And check out all of Del Marva Studios' great podcasts at delmarvastudios.net. Without any further ado, here's your host, George Hobbs. Greetings and salutations, friends. Welcome to another edition of Conspiracy Theories Investigated. I am your host, as always, George Hobbs. Welcome to another edition. It's episode 31. Today we're going to be talking about Enron, the 9-11 connection. We're also going to talk about the whistleblowers who paid with their lives uh, over the years. Interesting episode. Lots of audio clips we're going to be uh, listening to during the course of the show. Remember, for the next day or two, DelmarvaStudios.net uh, is our home, but we are changing the show uh, name to The Fact Hunter. We already own TheFactHunter.com. We started work there. We are at The Fact Hunter on Twitter. Once we officially change it over, uh, we'll announce it, and um, we'll keep those things separately. So... TheFactHunter.com is going to have our radio, the chat room, uh, blog, vlog, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, so you won't have to be going back and forth from uh, the Delmarva Studios to Conse- Conspiracy Theories Investigated. And also, I think it's going to broaden the scope for people who we bring in to interview and talk about just because we lose the name Conspiracy Theories. Um, so we are hunting the facts. I am the fact hunter. I guess that's going to be my new mantra. Uh, nevertheless... Um, same show, same guy, um, and we are looking for the truth. Uh, in this show, we're going to be talking about how Enron actually has some connections to 9-11, um, the people whose lives were altered um, for discovering the truth, 
uh, and much, much more. Uh, without any further ado, let's get to tonight's show. So unless you've lived under a rock for the last 20 years, you all know that Enron imploded shortly after the 9-11 incident, right? So it really imploded December 2001. I think its stock was trading at the time, close to $100 a share. And by the end of the day, when all that information came out, I think it was 30 or 40 cents a share. The massive stock drops in U.S. history. Proximity to 9-11 in terms of timing was initially dismissed as America's bad fortune, right? But we know if you've listened to this show or you're a truther, you know there is really no such thing as a coincidence, right? But a growing body of evidence suggests that the implosion of Enron may have been closely tied to the events of 9-11. So for the next hour or two, we're going to attempt to connect some dots between Enron and the September 11th attacks. Now, to better understand Enron, it is really important to view Enron not just as one of these typical bad corporations that robs from the little guy, um, but you have to look at it as a vehicle of shadowy transnational interest, right? Because the, the scam of Enron went way beyond the borders of our country, Okay. Who used Enron and the various ways to create a natural gas pipeline from uh, Turkmenistan all the way out to the Indian Ocean? The intended rewards for such an undertaking uh, were never meant for the shareholders of Enron. And Enron was only meant to function uh, as a cog in the whole grand scheme of things, right? Outwardly, on the outside, Enron will continue Uh, to remain a puzzle. To quote Ron Kalari, he once said, Enron is a scandal so enormous that it's hard to wrap your mind around it. It's not just a single financial disaster. It's actually a jigsaw of interlocking scandals, each outrageous in its own right. So even though Enron touted itself as an energy company. It really only focused on natural gas. They weren't, uh, they weren't interested in coal, nuclear energy, solar energy, or even geothermal energy. Why is that? It's because the powers that be have complete control over the few natural gas resources in the entire world. And by forcing natural gas as a standard for producing energy, they intend to monopolize and throttle energy production, right? Everyone's been saying for years, why are we still using gasoline when we know we have all these new technologies that we could easily replace it? Well, money, 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 money. Many people think that there is a cure for cancer. But there's no money in cures. There's money in things that, there's money in medicines, not so much cures. As an energy source, natural gas is comparatively inefficient because it's a transportation is always a hazard, right? You're on the roads with those things, it's hazardous. 
Unlike energy produced by burning coal, energy produced from natural gas creates a rich, uh, excuse me, creates a chain of dependencies. Pipelines, gas stations, border treaties. And look, the powers that be are more interested in controlling people through such arrangements rather than producing energy. Uh, These type of arrangements also give the powers that be the opportunity to starve local industrial development and in some cases even pull the plug on local industry. We've seen it in West Virginia. Uh, It looks like the Keystone Pipeline is getting shut down, so you see these people's lives getting turned upside down all the time. The connection between Enron and the Rothschilds is pretty shadowy. Now, this first came to light about five or six months after 9-11 and just about 60 to 90 days after the collapse of Enron. Um, British journalist Greg Palast was on uh, the Alex Jones show. Alex asked, quote, where are the assets? See, everybody says there are no assets left since Enron was a dummy corporation. From the experts I've had on, they all transferred all those assets to other corporations and banks. Greg Palast would go on to say, yeah, this stuff has really gone just like a three-card three Monty game. Remember that there is money at the bottom. You did pay California's electric bills according to the investigation. They are telling me that they were pumped up unnecessarily, uh, unnecessarily excuse me, by 9 to $12 billion. And I don't know who they're going to get it back now. AJ says, well, they actually caught the governor buying it for $137 per megawatt and selling it back to Enron for $1 per megawatt and doing it over and over and over again. Uh, last one on to say, yep, the system has completely gone out of control and these guys knew exactly what was happening. You have to understand that some of these guys who designed the system in California for deregulation then went to work for Enron right after. Do you understand? They made the rules and then went to play for the guy who they made the rules for. Uh, in fact, I'm here in London right now and we have the British has some responsibility. The guy who was on the audit committee of Enron, a gentleman by the name of Lord Wakeham, and um, apparently there's a conflict of interest he's never been involved in. And, of course, AJ says he is the head of N.M. Rothschild. And Plast would go on to say, of course, there isn't anything he doesn't have his fingers in. So the, the corruption at... It was on the international level. It was uh, rampant in California, which to this day still has so many problems with corruption. And if you look at the state, people are fleeing the state left and right. Uh, It's being run into the ground. So we've laid the groundwork. Let's talk about the CEO, the guy behind it, and some things you may not know about it. So the wiki for Kenneth Lay says he was the founder, CEO, chairman of Enron, and of course was heavily involved in the Enron scandal, which was a major accounting scandal that unraveled in 2001, which was the largest bankruptcy ever to that date. Lay was indicted by a grand jury, 
and was found guilty of 10 counts of security fraud at the now-famous Enron trial. Lay died in July 2006 while vacationing in his house near Aspen, Colorado, three months before his scheduled sentencing. Now, I had people send me, uh, I actually had two people send me emails that I got late saying that he isn't dead. Uh, I need to investigate that, and when I do the the Bilderberg Group show next, I'll have to fill you in on that before we start the show. I need to look more into it. Um, The preliminary autopsy reported Lay died of a myocardial infection, which is a heart attack caused by coronary disease. Um, His death resulted in a vacated judgment. Um, He, quote-unquote, left behind a legacy of shame, characterized by his mismanagement and dishonesty. In 2009, Portfolio.com ranked Lay as the third worst American CEO of all time. His actions were the catalyst for subsequent and fundamental corporate reform in regard to standards of leadership, government, uh, governance, and accountability. Now, I believe he died shortly before he was supposed to report to jail. That's why a lot of people think it was all set up. Uh, Lay was one of America's highest paid CEOs. Between 1998 and 2001, Lay collected more than $220 million in cash and stock. He sold 1.7 million shares because you know it was going down the toilet. Uh, Now, during his trial, Lay claimed up that Enron stock made up 90% of his wealth. So he tried to claim that his net net worth was negative $250,000, which is a complete lie. Now, here's where it gets juicy, and this is where we start to intertwine 9-11 to Enron. It's like an onion. You start peeling back the layers. Lay was a friend of the Bush family. Most importantly, George H.W. Bush. Yeah, Poppy. He made monetary contributions, led several committees in the Republican Party, and was co-chairman. He was co-chairman of Bush's 1992 re-election committee. As president, Lay flew Bush and his wife to Washington on an Enron corporate plane. In December 2000, Lay was mentioned as a possible candidate for United States Secretary of the Treasury under George Bush. This guy behind the biggest scandal. And listen, if this pipeline went through, which we're going to be talking about, Enron would have continued to go on, and this guy would have been Secretary of the Treasury. From 1989 to 2002, Lay's political contributions totaled almost $6 million. Uh, About three-quarters went to Republicans, so he gave to both parties. And like we said yesterday, the left wing and the right wing belong to the same bird. Between 1999 and 2001, he gave $365,000 to the Republican Party. Now, World Trade, Tower, uh, World Trade Center Building 7. What was important about that building is 
one of the floors in that building belonged to the SEC. And many of the documents involved in the Enron investigation. So we're going to play a couple audio clips right now. The first clip is of Mr. Lay. And it's very frustrating to hear this guy talk like this because when you hear um, people who are absolute palm scum and try to talk like they're, they're good people, it's really infuriating. But this is clip one. We turn now to the Enron scandal. With the conviction of Enron's founder, Ken Lay, one of President Bush's top financial backers, is now facing the possibility of spending the next 30 or more years in prison. On Thursday, Enron founder Ken Lay was convicted in two separate trials on 10 counts of conspiracy, securities fraud, wire fraud, bank fraud, and for making false statements to banks. Enron's former CEO, Jeffrey Skilling, was also convicted. A jury found him guilty of 19 of 28 counts. The conspiracy and fraud convictions each carry a sentence of up to 10 years in prison. Four years ago, Enron filed for bankruptcy after years of defrauding its own workers and investors. The bankruptcy put over 4,000 people out of work. The value of the company's stock dropped from $90 to about 30 cents. Thousands of Enron workers lost their life savings. Hours after the jury announced its verdict, Ken Lay spoke outside the Houston courthouse and proclaimed his innocence. I'm going to make a very brief uh, comment, uh, obviously it'll be other times later. Uh, certainly uh, we're surprised, uh, I think probably even more appropriately to say we're shocked. Uh, certainly this was not the outcome we expected. Uh, I, I firmly believe I'm innocent of the charges against me, as I have said from day one. I still firmly believe that as of this day, uh, but it, despite what happened today, I am still a very blessed man. I have on my left this beautiful lady that's my wife. I have a very warm and loving and Christian family that supports me, a lot of friends, including some out there in the audience right now. And most of all, we believe that God, in fact, is in control. And indeed, uh, he does work all things for good for those who love the Lord. And we love our Lord, and ultimately, all of these things will work for good. Thank you so much for all of your courtesies, all of your uh, interest. And obviously, as time goes on, we'll have more things to say, but that's all I want to say today. What a scumbag. How many people lost their life savings and he didn't even have the balls to come out and say, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. That's not what the elitists do. They're not like us. They think differently than us. Um, it, it's very infuriating. Now we have some more audio um, going back to uh, Greg Palast on Democracy Now! This is a good audio clip. Uh, check this out. California, the state's former governor, Gray Davis, praised the jury for convicting Ken Lay and Jeffrey Skilling. Davis said, quote, given the way Enron ripped off California, I think the jury did an excellent job. I take some solace in the fact that Ken Lay and Skilling will spend some time in prison, he said. Six years ago, California was plunged into an unprecedented energy crisis. Rolling blackouts shut down parts of the state. Power bills soared. It turned out that at the center of the crisis was Enron. Although the company's role wasn't fully understood at the time. 
Two years ago, lawyers involved in a lawsuit in Washington state obtained audio tapes that proved Enron asked power companies to take plants offline at the height of the California energy crisis in order to make more money. In one tape phone call, an Enron employee celebrated the fact that a massive forest fire had shut down a transmission line carrying energy into California, causing the price of energy to rise. Yeah. The magical word of the day is burn, baby, burn. What's happening? There's a fire under the core line. It's the due rate from 45 to 2100. Really? Yep. Burn, baby, burn. <laughs> In this phone call, an Enron employee talked about how the company had ripped off poor grandmothers in California. Listen carefully. So, so the rumor's true? They're taking all the money back from you guys? All the money you guys stole from those poor grandmothers in California? Yeah, Grandma Millie, man. But she's the one who couldn't figure out how to code on the butterfly ballot. But yeah, now she wants her money back for the power you charged right up, jammed right up her for $250 a megawatt hour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know Grandma Millie, she's the one that I'm fighting for. Enron employees also discussed the possibility of Ken Lay becoming Secretary of Energy if George W. Bush won the 2000 election. Tell you what, you heard this here first. When Bush wins, that's Capture gone. That's Bill Richardson, he's gone. That's uh, Clinton, he's all these uh, socialists are gone. Yeah. You know who the biggest uh, single contributor to the Bush campaign is? You. <laughs> Enron. What? Enron. Is it Enron? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Is it? Is that true? Yeah, I think it is. The biggest single contributor. Yeah, the biggest that? corporate contributor to the. Holy. Is, uh, really? That's huge. <laughs> That's huge. Ken Lay is going to be Secretary of Energy. Get out of here. No. <laughs> but, uh... Can you imagine that? Why not, though? Why not? It could be, right? Yeah. I mean, why not? Who, you know, who's to say why not? It could be. That would be awesome, actually. That would be... How great would that be for all the players in the market? It'd be great. I'd love to see Kim Lai be Secretary of Energy. We'd open these markets up? Yep. And you know what? If you don't know what you're doing, you're f***ed. See ya. And in this phone call from January 2001, an Enron employee asked a worker at a power plant in Las Vegas to take the plant offline. That same day, energy supplies were so tight that Northern California experienced a stage three power emergency and rolling blackouts hit as many as two million consumers. Well, thanks, Coach. This is Rich. Hey, Rich. This is Bill up at Enron. Bill. How you doing, man? Junior or senior? <laughs> the third. <laughs> the third. What's happening, Bill? The third? Not much, man. I'm giving you a call. Uh, we got some issues for tomorrow. Okay. You ready for some issues? You're just about out of there, aren't you? Uh, I got a couple more hours. I ain't going anywhere. Good. All right, shoot. I've, I've got pen and paper. All right, man. I'm not, this is going to be a word of mouth kind of thing. Okay. Um, tonight, uh, when you finish your normal QF, so for hour ending one, right. it'll actually be tomorrow. Right. Uh, we want you guys to get a little creative. Okay. And come up with a reason to go down. Okay. Anything you want to do over there? Um, anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. There's some stuff that we could be doing tonight. That's good. You know, we need to do. We need to come down and inspect this switch on the steam turbine. This uh, this one switch on this induction steam valve has been failing us, and 
uh, we need to be down in order to pull the switch and adjust it. Can you believe this shit? They are messing with people's lives. And this stuff goes unreported. The CEO, Kenneth Lay, he goes on to deny everything. They had all this stuff on tape. Everything was manipulated. The people of California got steamrolled on this deal. They should be furious. And once again, people are never held accountable. Yeah. I like that. And then, uh, I don't know, I guess around 11 o'clock. We're already in 11. Right. You got to go back. Uh, we need you to go back down. Okay, shut back down for our ending. Yeah. So we'll do, we'll do our normal tomorrow. afternoon shutdown tomorrow. Yep. Okay, so... But we're not wanting to have it pre-scheduled. Right. It's supposed to be, uh, you know, kind of one of those things. Okay, so we're just coming down for some maintenance, like a forced outage type thing. Right. And that's cool. Hopefully. Because <laughs> <laughs> the schedule I just got over here, well, you know what it says. Yep, I'm looking right at it. Okay, it's the new schedule. You just got a new one? It says new schedule on the bottom. It's showing 52 all day. Oh, right. And so that's the one you're going to want to ignore. Exactly. <laughs> I knew I could count on you. No problem. I'm sure I'll have a good time. All right. Again, that's an Enron employee asking a worker at a power plant in Las Vegas to take the plant offline. That same day, energy supplies were so tight, Northern California experienced a stage three power emergency and rolling blackouts hit as many as two million uh, consumers. Greg Palast, uh, you write about this in Armed Madhouse. Yeah, uh, in a chapter called When Arnold Got Laid. I'm sorry, the pun is one of my worst. But um, you have to understand, this call to shut down power plants and basically flick the light switches to pretend that there was a blackout, uh, that we're heading towards blackout, drives up the price of power in California by 10,000 percent in an hour. But this was not just Enron. This, one thing we've got to get clear here, we're talking about an entire mob, not two guys, not even one company. Um, the same calls were made by Duke Power to San Diego Gas and Electric. We had a whole gang, Reliant, Dynagy, El Paso, uh, Duke, Entergy. These guys were all working in coordination, public service in New Mexico, um, and they were playing games with the power market. They were running it like a fixed casino. And yet only one company went down and only two guys and they weren't and they weren't even allowed to bring up the California power markets in this uh, in the trial so that basically the the Bush Justice Department did its very very best to keep the real crimes and the whole mob out of the courtroom because it would have brought it right back of course to the to the Bush administration itself and what does Governor Schwarzenegger have to do with it ah well the worst thing these guys fear one thing more than jail and that's giving back the money the state of California under Gray Davis, you just had him on saying, you know, God bless the, this jury. Uh, Gray Davis had demanded that after Enron got and their buddies got caught nicking the state for $9 billion plus, he did the obvious thing. He demanded that the money be returned. So Lay panicked. He did two things. He went to meet with Dick Cheney in Washington, but he also held a meeting with Mike Milken, who had just gotten out of jail for his multi-billion dollar stock fraud. Milken and Lay invited Arnold Schwarzenegger to a private meeting at the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills. And, you know, Schwarzenegger used to do these private hotel things where he'd go down to his Speedos, but now <laughs> this is in 2001. And they suggested that they needed a if only they could get the state of California to agree to uh, basically a sweetheart fake settlement where the people would get back instead of nine billion would basically get, you know, donuts instead of dollars next to nothing. 
Right after that, the recall drive starts against Gray Davis, who's demanding that the money be returned. Schwarzenegger becomes, the Terminator becomes the governator. And literally, within days, the lay plan from the Peninsula Hotel goes right into effect, and Schwarzenegger just starts signing off with every one of these power companies to give dimes on the dollar so that the public in California and in, uh, just never got its money back, just got virtually nothing. One of the things that wasn't addressed very much yesterday, though there was wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the trial and the verdict that came down yesterday for Skilling and for Lay, Ken Lay found guilty in every count, is the connection between President Bush and Enron. Uh, Enron founder Ken Lay and his family rank among President Bush's biggest financial backers of his political career. The family donated about $140,000 to Bush's political campaigns in Texas and for the White House. The president personally nicknamed Ken Lay, Kenny Boy. Overall, Enron employees gave Bush some $600,000 in political donations. According to the Center for Public Integrity, this made Enron Bush's top career donor, a distinction the company maintained until 2004. Shortly after Bush took office in 2001, Vice President Cheney met with Enron officials while he was developing the administration's energy policies. Our, grass, our guest, Greg Palast, examined the connections between Enron and the Bush administration in his documentary, Bush Family Fortunes. Even before he takes the presidential oath, Bush forms a secret task force, including Enron's Ken Lay, to rewrite America's environmental and energy laws. He put the very people who funded him in the room to devise a clean air policy. They wrote the policy, he enacted the policy, and the policy was strictly voluntary. Did nothing to clean up the air, yet he touted it as a major accomplishment. Instead of the government telling utilities where and how to cut pollution, we will give them a firm deadline and let them find the most innovative ways to meet it. These same funders were sick and tired of trying to play by the environmental rules and regulations. George Bush gave them an environmental clean air policy uh, that any corporation would lust after. How proud we are to be the number one state in the country in air pollution. Ken Lay got almost total, complete energy deregulation out of George Bush. What did the Bush administration do? It refused to impose price controls to put a cap on those utility prices, meaning a company could, like Enron could set its own prices to consumers. Show me the money. Show me the money. He was delivering a favor and a policy that the donors who put him in that office wanted. Consumers in California were being stiffed, and Enron was raking in hundreds of millions of dollars uh, uh, during that period uh, in corrupt profits. Uh, so that's a pretty good payback. But Enron squandered their California windfall in a series of spectacular frauds, which imploded, leaving thousands jobless and pensioners bankrupt. Now, George tried to downplay his links with Enron's Ken Lay and other corrupt bosses. By far, the vast majority of CEOs in America are good, honorable, honest people. In the corporate world, sometimes things aren't exactly black and white when it comes to accounting procedures. And the SEC's job is to, re is to, is to look and is to determine whether or not, uh, whether or not uh, uh, the 
whether or not the decision by the auditors was the appropriate decision. <laughs> Can- How is George W. Bush not in prison? Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so cringeworthy listening to this guy talk, just dancing around. These people are criminals. Back to the audio. Uh, whom George W. fondly called Kenny Boy, was the major campaign contributor to George W. Bush, and they exchanged Christmas cards with each other. Uh, Ken Lay was very personal, uh, very close uh, with the Bush family. I do know that uh, uh, Mr. Lay came to the White House in early in my administration, along with, uh, I think, 20 other business leaders to discuss the state of the economy. It was just kind of a general discussion. I have not met with him personally. An excerpt of the BBC's Bush Family Fortunes, produced by our guest and author today, Greg Palace, author of Our Madhouse. Care to elaborate? Well, yeah. I mean, you heard the traders saying that Ken Lay, being number one donor, was going to become Secretary of State. That's not what Lay wanted. Lay had a, had uh, a bigger wish list. Secretary of Energy. Excuse me, Secretary of Energy. Um, he wanted to name the electricity cops, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So Ken Lay secretly gave Dick Cheney a list of three names. Now, you have to understand, Al Capone used to have to buy off the cops. Here's Ken Lay trying to get them appointed. He said, here's three good choices for chairman of the commission that's supposed to regulate me, right? That he already knew that he was being asked for the $9 billion back, right? Anyway, uh, George Bush gave him a real extraordinary Christmas gift. He appointed all three guys to the Energy Commission. So Lay appoints his own regulators. And he did this before in Texas when... Uh, George, when George Bush was governor of Texas, when George Bush says he didn't know Ken Lay, and I've got a letter in our madhouse showing a note from Ken Lay saying, here's the guy I want to be my regulator, the cop that's supposed to be watching me. And sure enough, Governor, governor George Bush appoints Ken Lay's personal cop. I want to bring back in Robert Bryce, author of Pipe Dreams, Greed, Ego, and the Death of Enron. You're in the state. You're in Texas, where it all began, uh, where the relationship between Ken Lay, Enron, and the Bush family began. Can you talk more about this issue that is not very much addressed in the media, though they are covering the story, of course, of the verdict? Well, remember that the, the, the Enron and Ken Lay connection to the Bush family precedes George W. Bush. Uh, Ken Lay was a donor to the presidential campaign of George I, George H.W. Uh, Bush, uh, when he ran for president in 1980. And Lay was also involved in, and close t- had close ties in the Reagan administration when they deregulated the natural gas market. So, um, you know, this was not uh, by any means any kind of a secret here in Texas. Enron was pushing deregulation in Texas. They were pushing deregulation in California, um, et cetera. If I can just mention one thing in terms of California, you know, I take Mr. Palace's point about, you know, the, all of these companies, uh, you know, gaming the market in California. That's all true. And they all certainly did. Many of them have paid fines. They haven't faced criminal charges, which I think they should. But remember, uh, that was largely a product of the fact that the California legislature opened the market and they did so in a, in a, in a shoddy manner that allowed it to be gamed. So I'm not excusing any of the activity here, but there's there's enough blame to go around here in terms of what happened in California, and some of that was due to simply poorly written laws that, it, that occurred in California. Now, 
what happened, though, with regard to the Bush administration and Enron? Well, it's clear. Um, remember, it's, it's uh, six years ago and a, six years and a month uh, when George W. Bush was at Enron Field at the opening day of Enron Field, um, uh, watching a Houston Astros game in the in the box seats owned by Ken Lay. I mean, this is a relationship that's long and deep. Once Bush gets elected, what's ha what happens in early 2001 when the power market in California starts to, I mean, where the, you know, the, the, the price gouging is obvious, prices are skyrocketing, Ken Lay gets a personal meeting with Dick Cheney and briefs him on the, the, their, their goal, which was not to have the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission intervene in the California power market. When you look at the records of those meetings, you see that when Cheney comes out of the meeting, he then has, a, has an interview with the Los Angeles Times that either the next day or the following day, and he repeats virtually the very same talking points that Ken Lay handed to him, which were, don't intervene, we believe in the free market, let's let the free market figure out what the price or proper price of power in California is. Well, so, in, in fact, the FERC didn't intervene. They, inter they, they stayed out of the market for another two months. Billions more were, were, uh, of costs were imposed on California consumers. But then what happened? Finally, the, the, the FERC intervened in June of 2001, imposed soft price caps, and the entire power market collapsed. Price sanity returned to the market because the federal government showed that it was willing to intervene. And that was what that whole market had been waiting for for months was some kind of federal intervention. And that's where I think the corruption has really occurred clearly was that Lay got access to Cheney, and Cheney and the Bush administration led the FERC or, or, or instructed the FERC not to intervene, and that cost California dearly. We're talking to Robert Bryce, author of Pipe Dreams, and Greg Palast, author of Our Madhouse. Both men have followed Enron and the Bush dynasty for years. Uh, Robert Bryce talking to us from Texas. Greg Palast here with us in New York. We're going to go to break, and when we come back... Uh... Some pretty powerful stuff. Um, you can just Google Enron, the Bush connection on Democracy Now! to find that full clip. It's about 59 minutes um, <clears throat> President George, both Bush, Poppy Bush and George W. Bush have fingerprints all over Enron. And a lot of people don't know that. They just know about Kenneth Lay uh, and the other fella. But so much more goes into this thing. Starting with, let's start with the international players now, Qatar. Been to Qatar. Probably the hottest place I've ever been to. They hold 13, almost 14% the world's natural gas reserves, making it number three on the chart. Um, Qatar and its gas reserves have been historically dominated by the Rothschilds, their shell oil. Qatar figures prominently as a forwarding base for American operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, during the war, it was uh, they had a little R&R place there. They flew us over to uh, for three days. Um, they were a little more relaxed Muslims. They allowed us to drink there. We'd get these little coupons. Uh, I think I spent three days there. They let us go shopping in a mall. And we went back from 8 to 10. They gave us two beer coupons, and we could have two beers. Guys who didn't drink were selling their beer coupons for like $20, $30 a piece because we didn't care. We were headed back to Iraq, and this is 2003, 2004. Um, so that was my memories of Qatar. But Qatar also ended up being a major player in the Arab Spring. And I know a lot of people have heard the phrase 
Arab Spring, but may not know exactly what it is. So let's talk about it. It was a series of anti-government protests, uprisings, and armed rebellions that spread across much of the Arab world in the early 2010s. Uh, It began as a response to oppressive regimes, low standards of living, like that you see in many Middle Eastern countries where the rich are really rich and the poor really poor. And it's a reflection of that right here in our country, right? Um, It started in Tunisia. From Tunisia, the protests spread to five other countries, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, and Bahrain. Uh, Whether either ruler was deposed, um, so you had Ali, Gaddafi, uh, Mubarak, and Salah, uh, where major uprisings and social violence occurred, including riots, civil wars, insurgencies. Um, they had minor, in, in about eight other countries, including uh, Morocco, Algeria, Lebanon, where there were more street protests, um, even some in Saudi Arabia. Um, the importance uh, of external factors versus the internal factors to the protests Spread and success is all contested. Once again, history is written by the winners. So um, we're not there. I don't know the direct result of the Arab Spring and the complete uh, outcome it had on the countries. In many countries, government shut down certain sites or blocked Internet service entirely, which goes on in many countries still to this day. Especially any time it was leading up to a major rally, they would shut down social media. Government also accused content creators of unrelated crimes or shutting down communication or specific site groups, such as Facebook. Uh, In the news, social media has been heralded as the driving force behind the swift spread of the revolution throughout the world. As new protests appear in response to the success stories shared around the world. Okay, so now Enron enters India. In an effort to extort energy costs from India, Enron began construction of a massive dabhole power plant near Mumbai. Over a period of several years, at least $3 billion were invested. Now, while the period, uh, excuse me, while the powers that be also contributed, most of the money came from the shareholders of Enron pension funds of gullible government employees, and even the United States government. Overseas Private Investment Corporation and the U.S. Export-Import Bank. So the idea was to supply Qatar's gas to Dabhole via an undersea pipeline at huge rates. But the project failed because they couldn't pull it off. So this was the beginning (laughs) of, that was like the first crack uh, in in the shield of Enron, $3 billion. That was, of course, the the rich can put a little bit of money in, but most of it came from pension funds, uh, shareholders, the people who got screwed, right? And let's talk about Turkmenistan. So when the Soviet Union broke up, the new Russia... After all the territories had been redivided, the new Russia held 25% of the world's natural gas reserves. Number four on the global chart was Turkmenistan. However, 
the former Soviet bloc had little use for natural gas, and real profits were in exporting it to developing countries in South Asia. Now, the problem was geography. The ocean route was difficult to access, making logistics expensive. And countries such as Turkmenistan have no access to the ocean. Quote-unquote, those in the know may be aware that the breakup of the Soviet Union did not result in freedom for the citizenry of the Soviet Empire. <clears throat> Excuse me. Shortly after the euphoria of the fall of communism, they kind of found themselves locked up in something they call uh, thugocracies, uh, owned and operated by the former elite. Right? It's just when a business changes the names. They just change the name, but the same people are still running the business. The powers that be had merely transformed an antiquated system of state capitalism to one of corporate capitalism. Turkmenistan is all too typical of such Soviet bloc countries. Now, once again, the powers that be continue to rule over the region through the installation of a dictator who in turn fostered a cult personality based on nationalism. As with the former Soviet regime, human rights abuses are standard. That's how they operated. The fall of communism meant that Western corporations could freely operate in the region for the first time. And of course, it came as no surprise that Turkmenistan's natural gas was quickly earmarked for export by groups as such as the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. Every single show we do, no matter what it's about, always ends up back with the Rothschilds and or the Rockefellers. Revenue from such exports could be easily devoured, with little being shared by the government or citizens of Turkmenistan. Further, Turkmenistan could serve as an access point for further pipelines going north into Russia. Turkmenistan's gas reserve have been historically dominated by Russian companies, such as Gazprom. Gazprom, in turn, has intricate relationships with big Rothschilds companies, such as Shell and BP. All right, let's move on to Afghanistan. By 2000, Enron, Unical, and other companies had completed most sectors of the gas pipeline from Turkmenistan to Dubal. As in the case of Enron, investment for these interlinking pipelines was obtained at the expense of gullible shareholders. Once again, with the powers that be contributing a minimum. Even a Saudi prince, Badr al-Aban, was duped into investing into the project through the Scent Gas Consortium. The only gap was Afghanistan. The United States government, which had earlier done its best to defend Enron's unethical policies in India, tried to appease the Taliban by giving them $2 million dollars and inviting their senior leaders to Texas for talks. Now, it should be noted that Enron was the single biggest contributor, once again, we've said this many times today, to Bush's first election campaign. There are also claims that Unical 
had a long-standing relationship with the Taliban and that the Taliban's 1996 conquest of Kabul was funded by UNOCAL. Unfortunately for them, the talk stalled. In his memoir, The uh, the Afghan Ambassador to Pakistan, during 9-11, an ex-Guantanamo detainee, Abdul Salam Zaif, recalls American disappointment when the Taliban awarded the pipeline to an Argentinian company called Brightus instead of Enron. Zaif would go on to say, as for Afghanistan, we wanted to secure a relationship that addressed the needs and fostered the development of our country. We thought that splitting the contract between both companies would be our best interest, but UNOCAL insisted on an exclusive contract. I suspect they didn't. Excuse me. I suspect they didn't want the Islamic Emirates would be able to withstand the pressure. But we put the interests of our country first and acted independently. Brightus would take part in the project, and other European companies would work as subcontracts. A new refinery began to be built in Kandahar, while a Greek company that invested $1 million in a satellite imaging survey discovered that there were significant possible reserves of oil in Kandahar and Helmand. Did UNOCAL begin to regret its uh, decision once these survey results were released? I suspect that UNOCAL eventually came to believe that the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan should be given time to complete its projects, which would eventually run into the sand because of our mismanagement. America also later implemented economic sanctions against Afghanistan through the United Nations and companies that expressed an interest in working in Afghanistan were prevented from doing so. So once again, the United States' big mafia dad Things didn't go our way. We put our leverage on other companies who even tried to do business with them. So as negotiations between the United States and the Taliban soured over the pipeline contract, we, of course, when I say we, the United States government, tried to strong-arm the Taliban. To quote a book published in France by two respected intelligence analysts, at one moment during negotiations... The U.S. representatives told the Taliban, either you accept our offer of a carpet of gold or we bury you under a carpet of bombs. Nothing says democracy and apple pie like uh, thugonomics, (laughs) right? Even though Bridus won the contract, it was unable to continue operations in a a feasible way due to the economic problems back home. uh, You all know the uh, Argentinian economy uh, was imploded as retaliation. Now, let's get to 9-11, okay? While the world was busy watching the television spectacle of 9-11, preparations were being made to use 9-11 as an opportunity to shield Enron, a company that overstated its earnings by billions, would have many skeletons in the closet, and it was time to get rid of them. Now, according to forensic investment expert Catherine Fitz, the powers that be may have never invested in Enron and instead created 
bogus financial assets for it. Enron's biggest trading partners were J.P. Morgan, Chase, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, UBS, and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Now, each and every one of those corporations I just named are all Rothschild affiliates. When Mexico was bailed out and when the IMF made loans to Russia, the money left the taxpayer-funded U.S. Treasury but may have never left the United States. And instead, it was being laundered at Enron through Enron's trading partners. After Enron's fall, the money may have been diverted to offshore Swiss banks. Swiss banks, excuse me. The former chairman of Enron's disgraced accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, became a board member of the Swiss UBS banks. Now, Fitz would also suggest that the Department of Justice turned a blind eye to Enron's sale of its web-based marketplace. There is a possibility that this asset was being jettisoned because it contained trails of the transfer of assets abroad. In a similar way, the accounting firm Arthur Anderson was given just enough time to shred documents. Enron's financial affiliates were also accused of manipulating the gold market by GATA. Enron had become a major distribution channel for gold derivatives such as those sold by Barrick Gold. Questions were being asked about whether or not there was real gold mining operations to back the derivatives. Now, the FBI led an investigation into gold price fixing, and this wasn't the first time that there's been a gold price fixing issue. You can go back decades. And the records of this investigation, you want to know where they were kept? Any, any guesses? They were kept on the 23rd floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. helped prevent these records from becoming public knowledge. And remember, that was the same FBI office where the FBI's bin Laden investigator, John Patrick O'Neill, met his death on September 11th, 2001. And don't forget the SEC had their office in World Trade Center Building Number 7. And there was documents on Enron uh, Enron there as well. Now, let's stop and take a moment to talk about Mr. O'Neill. He's probably the most prominent victim of the 9-11 cover-up. He was the FBI's lead investigator on bin Laden. As early as 1996, O'Neill headed a special FBI unit on bin Laden. Being a non-elitist truth seeker, He was quickly met by opposition from the CIA's Bin Laden Investigation Unit, headed by Michael Schur. The CIA avoided sharing any information with him because, you know, and we will be doing an episode on this, uh, Osama Bin Laden was a CIA agent in the the 80s. Um, I think he was, was it Colonel Tim Osman was his name. 
So O'Neill was the one guy who was trying to find the truth and the powers that be. <clears throat> they just dangled cheese in front of him. He was never able to get his hands on anything real. And when he did, you'll see what happens. Um, the powers that be played a wicked game of preventing O'Neill from digging too deep into the terrorist networks responsible for 9-11. Had O'Neill succeeded in his investigations, well, we all know that the terrorist trail would have led him straight to the doorstep of those powers that be. In 1998, the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania were bombed. Shortly after, Sudanese intelligence officials arrested two Pakistanis in connection with the bombing and hinted that an FBI interview could be arranged with the suspects. Of course, O'Neill jumped at the opportunity and was in the process of arranging an interview. However, once again, the powers that be made very swift moves, and they blocked his interview. As many of you know, the Clinton administration bombed a Sudanese pharmaceutical factory, which was not involved in any terrorist activity. The purpose of this was to make the Sudanese government back down from its offer allowing the terrorist suspects to be interviewed by O'Neill. Once again, thuggery. Later in 1998, the Azerbaijani government arrested Ahmed Salama Mabruk, a confidant of al-Zawahari. His computer files revealed organizational charts of terrorist networks, to block this information, the CIA kidnapped Mabruk from Azerbaijan and sent him to Egypt. However, believe it or not, O'Neill managed to get Mabruk's computer files from the Azerbaijani government. Even later in 1998, the Saudi government would go to great lengths to frustrate O'Neill's frustration into the U.S. embassy bombings. According to Guillaume Desk, O'Neill's investigators would arrive in Saudi Arabia to find that key witness had been executed the day before. The, the, the elitists, the powers that be, will stop at nothing to ensure they're not involved in this stuff. January 2000, the CIA finally shared information with O'Neill about a terrorism summit in Malaysia. But they hid from O'Neill the identity of one of the attendees, Khalid Al-Admahar, who had a U.S. visa. He had a U.S. visa. Al-Mihadar was one of the alleged 9-11 hijackers. The meeting was also attended by uh, Khalid bin Atish, who was said to have commanded the USS Cole bombing. Uh, Al-Hazami, another 9-11 alleged hijacker, was also present. And the CIA had actually photographed both Attached and Al-Zami at the meeting, but they did not share the photographs with O'Neill. Let's move to the end of 2000. O'Neill headed an FBI team in Yemen investigating the bombing of the USS Cole, only to find his efforts frustrated by U.S. Ambassador to Yemen, Barbara Bodine. Al-Mandar was in Yemen at that time, and could very easily have been tracked down by O'Neill. But once again, another roadblock was put in front of him. July 2001, O'Neill travels to Spain. He was hot on the heels of the 9-11 hijackers as his movements mirrored theirs across Spain. But they always managed to stay one step ahead somehow. 
and as September 11th approached, more blatant efforts were made to throw O'Neill's investigation off. So <clears throat> there was a conference, um, and he was put under investigation for missing briefcase, but that had this information on it. He is at the conference. He receives a phone call. The guy's acting like he's talking soft. He can't hear him. He steps outside so he can hear. He comes back in. His brief his briefcase is gone. The only people in that conference were CIA people, or excuse me, FBI. So someone on the inside stole his briefcase. He gets in trouble for losing his briefcase, and it was used to malign him in the New York Times. On when? August 19, 2001. O'Neill suspected that an interim FBI director was responsible for the New York Times article, and he said, I'm done. Enough of this. Why am I trying? Mike, you know, I'm done. And he retires August 2001. But the powers that be feel bad for them. And they're like, you know what? We're going to give you a job as the head of security at the World Trade Center. He was going to start later in the month. He wanted to take some time off and relax. Obviously frustrating. <clears throat> but his employer, Silverstein Properties, that's Silverstein, insisted that he started working the first week of September. He was given an office on the 34th floor of the South Tower to make sure he was taken care of and quieted. His employer arranged a meeting at 8 a.m. on September 11th to discuss security with O'Neill. Funny enough, key figures from his employer that was supposed to show up did not attend the meeting. <clears throat> And O'Neill and all the cronies, the, the lower-ranking guys, the, you know, just the regular Joes, well, they were all killed on 9-11 inside the World Trade Center building. <clears throat> and if there was one man that could have stopped 9-11, that certainly would have been John O'Neill. The SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, held an office in the World Trade Center 7 adjacent to the Twin Towers. And although the neighboring building suffered minimal damage from the collapse of the towers, the building was literally vaporized. On September 17, 2001, we came to know that the Securities and Exchange Commission had lost many files in the collapse of the World Trade Center building. Quote, the SEC has not quantified the number of active cases in which substantial files were destroyed. Reuters News Service and the Los Angeles Times published reports estimating them at 3,000 to 4,000. They include the agency's major inquiry into the manner in which investment banks divvied up hot shares of initial public offerings, IPOs, during the high-tech boom. The EEOC said documents from about 45 active cases were missing and could not easily be retrieved from any backup system. Speculation was rife that these were Enron files, and without these, Enron's disappearing assets could never be recovered. To this day, the SEC has been mum about what these files were about. 
About a decade ago, they responded to a freedom of information request by a 9-11 truther claiming that they could not find a bibliography of investigation records stored at the SEC offices formerly located within floors 11 to 13 of World Trade Center, building number 7. So, you know, every time we talk about September 11th, you see how many, how it benefited with Enron, with the Bush family covering up all that stuff getting uh, the military-industrial complex, boots on ground in Afghanistan, in Iraq, the poppy fields in Afghanistan, the mineral resources in Afghanistan. And as we just said, they found oil fields in Afghanistan and to cover up all the crimes of the powers that be. Let's talk about the fall of the Taliban, which led to the fall of Enron. Immediately after the fall of Taliban, Unical friendlies were maneuvered into position in the new regime, as well as its American liaisons. Zalgami Khalizet served as a consultant to Unical before the fall of the Taliban. He offered his expertise to the Bush administration in the early stages of the war against the Taliban. After the fall of the Taliban, he was selected as Bush's special presidential envoy for Afghanistan. This was on December 31st, 2001. Khalizad held that position of U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan from November 2003 until June of 2005. Similarly, Afghan President Karzai was also alleged to have worked for UNICAL prior to 9-11. Remember Karzai? He worked for UNICAL prior to 9-11. The dots connect. In uh, Guantanamo Bay, Zaif was amused to find himself questioned about the location of natural resources in Afghanistan rather than to be questioned about the whereabouts of Osama bin Laden. Apparently, Unical was thirsting for such information. Quote, At the beginning, all the questions were related to the current situation in Afghanistan. But this later changed completely. Questions were of a general nature or concern with the country's economy. Many questions were asked about natural resources or mines and their location. In particular, I was asked many questions about oil, gas, chrome, mercury, gold, jade, ruby, iron, and other precious stones. I was asked several times about uranium, even though I had previously not heard that there was any in Afghanistan. Often when I said that I did not know or when I had no information, I was punished and put into an isolation cage. But the maneuvering was really little use. The powers that be, they could just knock the Taliban's leadership and inherit the stability of the regime. Instead, Afghanistan devolved into a cesspool of numerous warlords that it had always been. And once again, the pipeline became all the more improbable. Securing the pipeline across the new Afghanistan would be near impossible. Realizing the inevitable, the plug was pulled on Enron, uh, excuse me, Enron, long before U.S. forces consolidated in Afghanistan. Though it was a pipe dream, pun intended, of the powers that be, the investment was mainly that of gullible people. And so the powers that be had little to weep over.
when the United States established military bases in Afghanistan, the bases all seemed to line up along the pipeline route, indicating that even without Enron, the pipe dream was still alive. Unical continued to toy with the idea of an Afghanistan pipeline long after Enron. A year later, May 13, 2002, the BBC reported that Afghanistan hopes to strike a deal later this month to build a $2 billion pipeline through the country to take gas-rich energy from Turkmenistan to Pakistan and India. Afghan interim ruler Hamid Karzai is to hold talks with his Pakistani and Turkmenistan counterparts later this month on Afghanistan's biggest foreign investment project. But later, Unical 2 saw the light, and in August 2005, Unical was absorbed by, wait for it, the Rockefeller Chevron Corporation and ceased operations as an independent entity. So, although Enron has long been dead, 20 years now, this year will be 20 years, hard to believe, variations and Permutations of the transborder gas pipelines for energy scam keep resources, uh, refers, resurfacing. Excuse me. The latest variation involves the proposed Keystone Pipeline, right? And that went through, and now it's back up, it's down. And that was from the Rothschild Sands from Alberta, Canada, into the United States. Um, <clears throat> and that game is a, you know, this energy game is all a, manipula- a manipulation game, if you haven't seen uh, and it goes up and it goes down and it's because of the stocks um, when they come out and say things like we're going to close a pipeline stocks go down so it's the wealthy manipulating uh, the market it really is but you know when we were talking about uh, Mr. O'Neill John Patrick O'Neill, the guy who was murdered uh, in the World Trade Center. I, I got to thinking about all the whistleblower who's not, they were just murdered, but lives were affected for questioning things. And I wanted to kind of remember these people um, at the end of the show. And I wanted to start with Barry Jennings. And I think that's one most people know. Barry Jennings was the former. Uh, New York Housing Authority Emergency Coordinator when 9-11 happened. After the first tower was hit, he and a gentleman by the name of Michael Hess, New York's Corporation Counsel, headed to the Emergency Command Center of the Mayor's Office of the Emergency Management on the 23rd floor of the World Trade Center 7. However, they found no one there. Upon contacting supervisors via telephone, They were told to leave immediately. So they headed downstairs. They became trapped and had to be rescued by firefighters. Both of them claimed to have heard explosions long before the towers came crashing down. At one point, even the stairway under them gave way due to an explosion. When they're escorted out of the building by firefighters, Jennings recalls the lobby being in ruins, as if by explosions. He also recalled what he felt like stepping over dead bodies in the darkness. Jennings would die on August 9, 2008, 
two days prior to the release of the NIST final report on the collapse of World Trade Center Building Number 7. The cause of his death has never been released, and this gentleman's family literally disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, for the past couple of minutes, it has been clear from this uh, space back on chambers in that area. So now they're walking back toward the World Trade Center. And as we keep letting you hear the personal stories, the survivor stories of exactly what happened inside the World Trade Center when that first plane went in, and of course the collapses since then, we're going to bring more of those to you now. Barry Jennings, you're on the eighth floor. You work for the city housing department. Explain to me the moment of impact. Well, me and Mr. Hesch, the Corporation Council, were on the 23rd floor. I told them we got to get, get out of here. We started walking down the stairs. We made it to the eighth floor. Big explosion. Blew us back into the eighth floor. And I turned to Hesh. I, I said, this is it. We're dead. We're, we're not going to make it out of here. I took uh, a fire extinguisher and I bust the window out. That's when this gentleman, this gentleman here heard my cries for help. This gentleman right here. And he said, kept, kept saying, stand by. Somebody's coming to get you. They, could, they couldn't get to us for an hour because they couldn't find us. You thought that was it? I thought, I thought we're dead. I thought that was it. I, I started praying to Allah. I said, that's it. We're gone. It's well, over. What was it like for you? You were inside there as well. It was pandemonium. I mean, it was something like out of a, a Bruce Willis Die Hard movie. Uh, he was there and he was crying and there was another gentleman crying and, and for help. We couldn't get to him. We tried to get through the, uh, we, we went through the buildings. We were lost. Both staircases, the backside was completely blown away. There was no way to access us. We couldn't get to him. And finally, uh, one, of the, one of the fire department teams found him. But uh, we didn't, think, we didn't think they were going to make it. Well, certainly you got out. Many others didn't, of course. We don't have a number right now of fatalities or injuries. But I want to translate a story to you that another man told me. He was near the building. He was on the lobby level, near the shopping area, near the promenade. The elevator doors, he said to me, blew open. And when the doors opened, there was a man on fire inside that elevator. That is the kind of tragedy we are talking about here and where the World Trade Center... You know, all, all I ever want them to know, you know, is that the only thing that I ever held uh, in terms of what was important with Barry was his safety and the safety of his family. And I, I tried my damnedest to, to try and preserve that. And, you know, I, I really guess that's all I can say. I, I don't, I don't want Well, we've to... talked about this on the show before, Dylan. I mean, there is a fine line here between getting the, to the truth and putting people in danger, and that's really the job that we have to do. And I hope that my listeners in America and the world at large really understands, you know, what we're up against here and that people do give their lives so that we can understand what is going on in the world and, and if necessary, we can understand what false flag terrorism is, how it's used, and obviously there's nothing more important that we should know today that 9-11 was an inside job. If it was, we need to know that because I believe we're on the brink of 9-12. So uh, this, this interview dedicated to Barry Jennings and his family and uh, if there's any possibility that we can find the truth, we're going to find the truth. And I want to put this call out to anybody who can help us do that. Write me at jackblood@hotmail.com or write to Dylan Avery and let us know if you have any tips. And let's continue. Let's stay on this story and let's, you know, really justify the great life that uh, of public service 
that Barry Jennings led. This is something, Dylan, that we hear from all these politicians. They're here to help us, and they're, they're living this life of public service. Barry Jennings was a guy who really did that, and his life meant something. And as long as I'm around, and I know as long as you're around, we're going to get to the bottom of this, and we're going to tell people whatever it is that we can find. So I really appreciate you sharing this information, and uh, I want to let my listeners know that anything else we find out, you can hear it on this show, or, or you can look up Dylan Avery, uh, Loose Change, and uh, and please stay tuned to this. These people have given their lives for what we do every day. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. I just I I I wish it didn't have to be like that with Barry. You know, I I, I always hoped that it wasn't going to end like that. So I'm just I'm hoping that, like you said, I hope I hope we can figure out what happened, and I hope that his family can be helped out in any way possible, you know, or, or maybe they just want to disappear, you know, maybe, maybe that's it. I mean, maybe they, they just want to disappear and never want to hear about it again. But at the, at the very least, I, I need to at least know exactly what happened. Cause, you know, I, I knew him, you know, I knew the man. I, I got to meet him, you know, I got to sit in his office and watch him eat his lunch and we got to talk for a while, you know, it's like, I didn't just grab him and put a camera in his face and that was the end of that, you know, and like I checked up on him, like I, I was always concerned about Barry, and I was always trying to make sure that everything was okay with him. We had to, that we did what we had to do, but we also tried to make sure that he was okay and as safe as possible. And I don't know. If I had the money to put him in witness protection, <laughs> that's what I would have done in the first place. Well, and that's what he needed. And, you know, maybe, maybe our listeners need to call up Michael Bloomberg and ask what happened. Or Rudy Giuliani or, or one of these people. Hey, what happened to your your honorable employee what happened to this man that was so dedicated to public service and spoke the truth you can't just forget about him because we haven't dylan uh, i really appreciate you being on the show today you keep us in the loop okay and let us know uh, what what you find out here i know there's a lot of things you can't talk about and uh, we want to keep this investigation going so this is a great update and i think this is really going to help people really um you know, get to where they need to be about the witnesses to 9-11 truth. And uh, like so many things like this that have happened, the, the best people are the ones that are sacrificed in order to cover up the lies. Yeah, that's definitely one way of putting it. Dylan Avery, folks. Dylan Avery, loose change. Dylan Avery. Uh, Dylan, thanks again for being on the show. Look forward to having you back again real soon. Yeah, for sure, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Let me do all right, there you go. And that's uh, Barry Jennings. It's unbelievable what they do. Uh, let's move to our next uh, individual, Hunter S. Thompson. And in case you live under a rock, <laughs> Hunter Thompson was a really famous hippie journalist. He was the guy who wrote the book Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He's the one that put adrenochrome mainstream. Um, he was always uh, contempt of authority, um, and he was one of the earlier 9-11 truthers. In an August 2002 interview, he said, uh, I've spent enough time on the inside of the White House and campaigns, and I know enough people who do these things that think this way, right? We talk about the psychopaths, how we have that filter you know, like, we're not going to go out and, and wipe out people, right? And these people, these psychopaths, don't think like we do. 
Um, he goes on to say that uh, the public version of the news is never what happens. And we know that. The people who are listening to this show know that. They get that. Paul Roberts, in his Globe and Mail article from Saturday, February 26, 2005, wrote the following. Hunter telephoned me on February 19th, the night before his death. He sounded scared. It wasn't always easy to understand what he said, particularly over the phone. He mumbled, yet when there was something he really wanted you to understand, you did. He had been working on a story about the World Trade Center attacks and had stumbled across what he felt was hard evidence showing the towers had been brought down, not by the airplanes that flew into them, but by explosive charges set off in their foundations. Now he thought someone was out to stop him and publishing it. They're going to make it look like a suicide, he told him. I know how the bastards think. And the very next day, he was suicided. While many wouldn't be surprised if he had shot someone else, uh, Hunter S. Thompson was not the kind of guy that would take his own life. There's a brief interview with Hunter S. Thompson from uh, 2002. Let's see. Oh, here at 9-1201. Here it is. It was just after dawn in Woody Creek, Colorado, when the first plane hit the World Trade Center in New York City on Tuesday morning. And as usual, I was writing about sports, but not for long. Football suddenly seemed irrelevant compared to the scenes of destruction and utter devastation coming out of New York on TV. Did, do, do you think that the event completely transformed the way in which Americans see themselves and their own vulnerability? Mm, no, the event by itself would not have done that. I've seen planes at the Empire State Building before. I didn't go totally out of my mind. People have been killed. But it was the way the administration was able to use that event and to you know, use it as a springboard for everything they wanted to do. Now, that might tell you something. I remember when I was writing that column, uh, you sort of wonder when something like that happens, well, who stands to benefit? You know, uh, fake murder. You know, who had the opportunity and the motive? You just kind of look at these basic things. In terms of just a programmatic, uh, mean, greedy, tunnel-visioned looter, these people make Nixon look like a, a statesman. I, uh, I somehow knew it was real. I don't know why I've seen enough uh, real life. What is that noise? In my fogged uh, condition. You know? All right, well, what the hell? I saw that the U.S. government uh, was going to benefit, and the White House people, the Republican administration, to take the mind of the uh, public off of uh, the crashing economy. Now, you want to keep in mind that every time a, a person named Bush gets into office, the nation goes into a, a drastic recession. They call it. It sounds. It uh, sounds almost. It sounds almost like the plot of that that film, Wag the Dog, where where, where film producers sort of concocted uh, a national event to inspire patriotism to take the public's minds off off misdemeanors committed by the president. Are you? I mean, is, is it? It seems a very long bow to me. But are, are you sort of suggesting that that this worked in the favour of the Bush administration? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and. It's, uh, I, I spent enough time on the inside of, well, the White House and the minute, you know, campaigns, and I, I've known enough other people who do these things, uh, think this way, to know that the public 
version of the news of an event is never really what happened. And these people, I think, are willing to take that even further so that I don't assume that, that I know the truth about what uh, went on that day. And, yeah, I just look around and looking for well, who had the motive, who had the opportunity, who had the uh, equipment, who had the uh, and the will. Yeah, they, these people were looting the treasury, and they they knew the economy was going to uh, go into a total a spiral downward. It, it, from this distance, though, it does seem extraordinarily conspiratorial that that you that you could sit there and and see the hand of the U.S. government in this attack, rather than seeing international terrorists bent on somehow hurting America and the American people. What sort of reaction did, did your views get among among your peers or amongst other journalists? <laughs> well, it was, uh, it was greeted universally with uh, kind of uh, nervousness and uh, almost nobody agreed with me, but nobody thought it was the right thing. Just to answer your question, no, it was uh, about 99 to 1. Does that mean, Hunter S. Thompson, that in a way... It's hard for you to appear credible within US, within the U.S. media because people would say, "Oh, look, that's just another conspiracy th- theory from a drug-addled gonzo journalist like Hunter S. Thompson." Yeah, that's a, that's a problem. Uh, I'm not sure if it's my problem or, or other people's or theirs. But I'm, I'm looking at this column uh, and the one after it. I've been right so often, and my my percentages are, are so high. I'll stand by this column that I wrote. Uh, that day and uh, and the next one. So uh, what appears to be maybe tons of journalism. Well, I'm not sure where. I'm, I'm not going to claim any you know, prophetic powers, but Hunter S. Thompson, you were right, dude. Rest in peace. Next individual, Kenneth Johanneman. He worked as a janitor at the World Trade Center and was working on 9-11. He was in the North Tower waiting for an elevator when the first explosion occurred. Quote, I was down in the basement, came down. All of a sudden, the elevator blew up. Smoke. I dragged a guy out. His skin was hanging on. I dragged him out, and I helped him to the ambulance. August 31st, 2008. Once again, another individual died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. We should be able to hear what this man is saying now. Uh, anything else that you saw? Were you there for the second uh, hit yeah. by the plane? Yeah, about 10 minutes later, the second building went off. Did you see it? Yes, I saw it. It just blew up. A big explosion. People started running. It was just chaos everywhere. People jumping out. People just kept jumping and jumping and jumping. And you could still see they were alive because they were flailing around. The FBI has already stepped in to investigate. It could be possibly uh, a terrorist strike. It could be. It could be because it was the first one went off and then 10 minutes later this just blew up out of nowhere. Hard to think that that would just be accidental. No, I don't think it would be accidental. Back it up, folks. Back it up. Kenny? Jahanneman. Spell your name. J-O-H-A-N-N-E-M-A-N-N. And you were working there? Yes, I was right there. I was in the I was down in the basement. Came down. All of a sudden, the elevator blew up. Smoke. I dragged the guy out. His skin was hanging off. And I dragged him out, and I helped him out of the, out of, to the ambulance. Thank you. Right? That's Kenneth Johanneman. He was uh, killed once again. Uh, Quote-unquote... Uh, self-inflicted gunshot wound. It's funny how all these people who are quoted 
on air going against the narrative are just dying off. Next individual we're going to talk about, Philip Marshall. This is a big one. Philip Marshall was an airline pilot. He spent 10 years independently investigating 9-11 and published his findings in a book titled The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Now, his central argument is that the Bush administration and the Saudis collaborated on 9-11. He also believed that Osama had died in 2001, which a lot of people really believe, between September and December 2001. Uh, he was not involved. Marshall was also dismissive of the no-plane theories regarding 9-11. Uh, he did believe that they were hijackers. They had trained in Pinal Air Park, which is in Arizona, and they were later trained by experienced Saudi pilots. Uh, he also believed that all planes were intended to strike simultaneously, but the hijackers faced delays in taking over the aircraft. His Twitter account was active until uh, January 31, 2013. Uh, his Tumblr account, the last entry in there, was January 24, 2013, a week prior to that. On February 2nd, 2013, three days after his last Twitter account, his last Twitter tweet, I guess you'll call it, Philip Marshall and his two children were found dead inside their gated community home in Santa Barbara. Now, the establishment wants us to believe that Philip Marshall killed his children and then killed himself. Some believe, and this a lot of people don't know this, that Marshall, he was affiliated with Barry Seal. And not to expose 9-11, which cost him his life. And once again, some believe this is also a message to other B, other, I guess you would call them wannabe investigators. Uh, I didn't spend a ton of time on it, but I, I've seen videos of neighbors and people who knew them that said there was zero way he was capable uh, of doing this. Uh, I did find a brief interview um, where he talked about the big bamboozle and the Saudis and the CIA. I don't agree with everything he does, but some of it I certainly do because I think Israel's were definitely involved with this. Here is Philip Marshall. Beginning with reports by veteran federal investigators, we see that for 18 months preceding 9-11, Saudi intelligence agents harbored and supported the 9-11 hijackers in every conceivable fashion. We will learn how the operation was funded, how their handlers let the, let the lead of the hijackers to flight training on Boeing airliners in the Arizona desert, and how they devised an air attack that defeated the world's most sophisticated defense system. And skipping over, suspiciously enough, the vice president's former corporation was well positioned to provide massive logistical services to 100,000 U.S. troops for a relatively quick deployment. He also fed America a stream of false intelligence about weapons of mass destruction and embellished links between Saddam Hussein and bin Laden during an urgent rush to war. Our guest for the remaining three hours of tonight's program is Captain Philip Marshall. We will get to him after a brief break. Please stand by. Sustained inverted flight will continue for the duration of the program on Coast to Coast AM. Without further ado, let us bring on to the bridge of the mothership the one, the only, Captain Philip Marshall. Welcome, sir. Hello, John. How are you tonight? I'm doing all right. I um, your book is absolutely fascinating. It really is. It's so well written. It's it's very articulate and it's it's clever and it's and it's 
And it's scary as hell. Uh, where would you like to start on this? Uh, car bombers did what? Or <laughs> this is this is some amazing stuff. And and I have just it's just one of those it's one of those works you just want to linger over because not only is it well written, but you can't believe what you're reading. So how were these novice pilots able to fly as competently as they did? Because I couldn't jump into the left seat any of these aircraft. Take a look at the POH and and uh, do my thing. Uh, when we uh, when we talked earlier, I said, "Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, give me give me a basic idea of the controls. Let me look at the pilot's operating handbook for a minute." You go, "Well, look. Here's the thing. When you shove those throttles forward, you better know what you're doing because that thing is going to take off like a rocket, and you're not just going to be able to fly this thing like a little Cessna and just make it do what you want. This aircraft has to be managed." So how did these guys do this, and where did they receive their training, and who arranged that? Yeah, that was uh, that was the first thing that that really raised the red flag for me was when I put when when I got the NTSB reports and saw the flight patterns and I and uh, the the um, black box recordings and all that are very very accurate and they all lined up you know to the to the half second, basically, with everything. So um, I put that together. Uh, I've got all the black box recordings uh, on my on my website, so people can see. You know, they can go in there and look at it. Especially airline when airline pilots look at this thing, they go, "Holy, holy smoke! How in the world, you know, did they know how to do that?" You know, so it's very obvious to me that they had a Boeing instructor. And um, and Boeing airplanes, and th- there was no doubt about that. For instance, I tried to fly the pattern of American seventy seven, the one that hit the Pentagon, and I flew it, um, you know, three three hundred miles three hundred miles to the west <laughs> is where this this Hani Hanjour, who was the the pilot. Uh, he was a Saudi guy from the same hometown as the the Prince Bandar, who was documented as funding this operation through the Riggs Bank. That's a that's a whole different story. But at any rate, he took the airplane from 300 miles west, made the perfect turnaround. Of course, that was a pretty easy one there because he was going west. So all he had to do is basically reverse course, you know, for for his navigation. Yep. Um, so then he came back into into Washington. He came over Dulles Airport uh, around nine thousand feet. Uh, he clicked the autopilot off at seven thousand feet, and you can see he kind of waved it a little bit. But that's to be. I, I mean, I can't imagine flying that airplane single pilot. You know, I rely on my co-pilot. <laughs> you know, that, I mean, you're a, you're you're basically a two-headed. Four-armed monster in the in 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 the cockpit of a, one of those airliners, and you're checking and cross-checking, and you know we have all types of procedures that you know we're, we're watching each other. You can't you, almost doesn't cut it uh, in, in the airline business. You know, oh, I almost got to seven thousand feet. I love leveled off at six thousand. Yeah, well, that's great, but you just killed you know five hundred people. You know, it right. doesn't it, it doesn't cut it. Um, but anyway, he he clicked off the autopilot at seven thousand feet. Came over the, coming right at the Pentagon. He had uh, he he too had National Airport locked in on his navigation. So on a beautiful day like that, he could uh, 
pick up the target visually. And when he did that, um, he came over the Pentagon. He was he was way high. He was at seven thousand feet, and and the Pentagon's not that easy to spot really from the air. It's kind of spread out building, and there's a lot of other buildings in the in the area. It, it, you really have to know what you're looking for. And um, you know, he came down seven thousand feet, and he, and he did a a steep descending turn and rolled out at 2,500 feet with the Pentagon in the, wind, in the windshield in front of him. Now, think about what was going on at that time. They just killed two pilots. It was a murder scene. It was chaos. It was, I, I can't even imagine trying to stay focused in, in a situation like that. But this guy, you know, had the situational awareness to, to roll out at 2,500 feet and started diving towards the Pentagon, and and then he he pushed the throttles up to the firewall. Now, when I tried that in the simulator, <laughs> I, you know I'm a pretty big guy. I'm 220 pounds, six three, two twenty, something like that. I could not hold the yoke down because those engines produce something like sixty thousand pounds of thrust each. Yes. So, so that thing's climbing like a bat out of hell. So the only way, so I, I actually missed it on the first, I was a 1,000 feet and climbing when I went over it the first time in the sim. Um, it took me three tries to hit the, or four tries actually to hit the building. And the only way I could do that was to start trimming the nose down before I pushed the throttles up. So according to the official, or According to the intelligence community, let's say uh, this was this guy's first time yeah. in the cockpit of a seven fifty seven. Yeah, sure. I don't think so. So well, you, you know that leads me to believe that hey, somebody trained him. Hey, can I find any? Uh, can I find any evidence that you know someone trained them? Well, when I found the Congressional Joint Inquiry report. And learned that as soon as these guys hit the ground in Los Angeles on on January fifteenth, you know they were met by employees of the Saudi Aviation Authority. Really, and they were connected to a a, a company called Dalla Afco, which is a Saudi operator, kind of a contractor for the Saudi government that operates Boeing. Airplane, so that tells me right there. It's like, oh, there it is. <laughs> I found, I found, you know, where they, where they got instructors from, and I found out where they uh, got the manuals from, and the expertise that was needed to to fly this this particular mission. Uh, my next step was okay. Now I need to find an airport, and I need to find airplanes, <laughs> and. Um, all the reports, the FBI guys were following these guys out into this triangle out in, in Arizona. And I started looking around out there for, you know, they, they have these uh, storage airports. The, the banks, you know, own most of the airplanes that are leased by the airlines. And sometimes in between these leases, they're parked at these storage airports. And one airport really started to stick out. It had 757s and 767s parked on the field. 
in the summer of 2001. Really? And it was a CIA airport from back in the Air America days. Um, so that really started to raise some red flags. And then on top of that, there was a, a um, the number three guy who was appointed, number three guy at the CIA who was appointed uh, by W on in, in June of 2001, his firm was the one that was placing all these bets, uh, uh, I'm sorry, trades, on the airlines that went down. He had put options on two airlines, or he didn't, but his firm did. So there was a connection there. Jeremy Scahill is a investigative author that wrote extensively about Pinal Air Base out there. And, um, you know, that's where these guys disappeared to. That, that's where they were. That's where the FBI um, reported seeing them out in the Arizona desert. And at the same time, the head of the Saudi intelligence, the longtime guy, Prince Turkey Al Fazl, was in in the area he was he was up in las vegas he was in the same desert gotcha. about a hundred guys that disappeared or they flew out about a week after the attack understood there he goes just a short clip from uh, philip marshall his opinion on the saudis and of course once again it always leads back to the cia doesn't it it just always does uh, next, Senator Paul Wall, uh, Wellstone, the Democratic senator representing Minnesota, was probably George W. Bush's biggest enemy. Senator Wall, uh, Wellstone voted against the Iraq War. He voted against the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And he also voted against giving the president too much power in the Iraq War. And in hindsight, he was right about all three things, was he not? But the vote that probably earned him his death sentence was voting in favor of an independent commission for investigating 9-11. He also believed 9-11 to be an inside job. To quote uh, Pat, Ro- Pat O'Reilly, who was a close friend of the senator, he said, I asked him how his week had been, and he said, it's been tough. Vice President Cheney called me in and told me to get on their bandwagon where there would be serious ramifications in Minnesota and stop sticking your nose into 9/11. There are some rumors going around, but we are going to get the bottom we're going to get to the bottom of this. Uh, when Paul made the statement, there were about 10 military veterans standing around us and he spoke to them about 9/11. There are so many things going on about 9-11 that just don't make sense. Wellstone knew 9-11 was staged. Wellstone, his mission was to get to the bottom of what really happened on 9-11. Wellstone died on October 25th, 2002, along with seven others. I said they don't care who they have to go through to silence these people. Uh, in his Beechcraft crashed into a dense forest two miles from the Elevith Airport. This crash became the subject of a book by Don Jacobs and uh, the man James Fetzer. I just got another one of his books yesterday. 
Um, go on James Fetzer's website and get his books. This one, The American Assassination, The Strange Death of Senator Paul Wellstone. The National Transportation Safety Board official who investigated the case was a Bush appointee who earlier had ruled no foul play in the strange plane crash that killed Democratic senator candidate Mel Carnahan three weeks before his expected victory over John Ashcroft. Even though the NTSB was expected to handle the crash scene, the FBI did. No cockpit reporter or black box was ever found, even though every single aircraft is required to have them. The consensus among conspiracy theorists, right? Conspiracy theorists is that the plane was hit by some kind of electromagnetic pulse. Around that time, cell phones and garage door openers ceased working in the vicinity. Do you understand that? People, their cell phones shut down. When this happened, everybody in the area, their, their cell phones went down. Anything that worked on a remote stopped working. So it was taken down for sure. Uh, we have a clip. Uh, FBI documents on Senator Paul Wellstone raises questions about his death. Um, we're ending right now on an entirely different note. Uh, we're going to Minnesota. Um, right, well, Minnesota Senator Paul Wellstone died eight years ago this week. He died in a plane crash 11 days before a vote in what had been a tight Senate race. Uh, Minnesota Public Radio has just obtained the FBI record of the late senator and found that the FBI had been tracking Wellstone for nearly 30 years, starting in the 1970s after he was arrested in an anti-Vietnam War protest. The records might also raise new questions about the plane crash that killed Wellstone, his wife, his daughter, and three staffers. For more, we're joined via Democracy Now! video stream by Minnesota Public Radio reporter Madeline Barron, who obtained the FBI files on late Paul Wellstone through a Freedom of Information Act request. We only have a minute to go, but if you could just summarize, Madeline, what it is you found uh, in these documents. Sure. Um, the documents start in 1970 when Wellstone is arrested for a protest against the Vietnam War in Minneapolis. The FBI gets a copy of his fingerprints and puts him into to their files, and then they jump to when he received death threats after his vote against the Gulf War resolution right after he takes office in 91. Um, his state director agrees to have the senator's phone tapped, and then they end with the investigation into the fatal crash in 2002. And talk about what they found in this fatal plane crash. What was interesting is that the FBI did pursue some criminal leads in the first two days. So, for example, they received a call from um, someone in Jacksonville, Florida, who claimed that mobsters involved with the trucking industry had disconnected the plane's de-icers. Um, and the office received a threatening postcard the day before. Uh, another person said that he heard gunshots in the area right before the crash. So they investigated all of these leads. And so it was interesting to me that they, that they did take them seriously. And they range even from someone saying that an Aryan group might have been involved. So, um, yeah, and then over, after two days, they passed it along to the National Transportation Safety Board. And in, in the files on this, this many years of tracking him, anything especially unusual of the surveillance of him that, uh, that you found? No, the, um, he gets him, you know, right at the tail end of Hoover's tenure at the FBI. So really that 1970 um, entry is the only one um, from his activism as a, as a young college professor. Um, it was interesting that, you know, such a small scale protest would make its way into the F FBI's file. 
Well, Madeline Barron, last 15 seconds, what you were most surprised by and what you think uh, is the most important headline out of these documents that you received under FOIA request. Just the risk that uh, Wellstone took by taking the stance against the Gulf War is very scared by these threats you received and, you know, that sometimes people, you know, take on that risk if they have an unpopular view. Well, I want to thank you very much for being with us, Madeline Barron, uh, reporter for Minnesota Public Radio. That there you go. I mean, look, he was against Vietnam, which was a ruse. We talk about the Gulf of Tonkin. He was against the Iraq War. He was against Desert Storm. He was right about all these. His voice got too loud and it was suppressed. It's terrible. Just absolutely terrible. Let's move along to Beverly Eckert. Beverly Eckert's husband, Sean Rooney, died on the 98th floor of the World Trade Center's South Tower. After 9-11, she refused to accept a cash settlement from the government and instead insisted on suing the governments of the United States and Saudi Arabia. Accepting a cash settlement would mean forfeiting the right to sue all public and private parties whose negligence contributed to 9-11. This trick was used to ensure very little details of 9-11 trickled out through such lawsuits. <coughs> Excuse me. Eckert was the co-founder of Family Steering Committee, a group of 12 9-11 family members whose persistent campaigning resulted in the creation of a 9-11 commission in 2002. Although the 9-11 commission did more to obfuscate than to shed light, Eckert remained undeterred and continued to lobby for more investigation into 9-11. As early as October 2001, Eckert had co-founded Voices of September 11th, an advocacy group and an online information clearinghouse for all 9-11-related material. In a statement made to USA Today on December 19, 2003, Eckert said, I've chosen to go to court rather than accept a payoff from the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund. Instead, I want to know what went so wrong with our intelligence and security systems that a band of religious fanatics, quote-unquote, was able to turn four passenger jets into an enemy force and attack our cities, kill 3,000 civilians with terrifying ease. I want to know why two 110-story skyscrapers collapsed in less than two hours and why escape and rescue options were so limited. By suing, I forfeited the $1.8 million average award for a death claim I could have collected under the fund nor do I have any illusions about winning money in my suit. What I do know is I owe it to my husband, whose death I believe could have been avoided, to see that all these responsible are held accountable. If we don't get answers to what went wrong, there will be a next time. Instead of 3,000 dead, it could be 10,000 dead. What will Congress do then? So I say to Congress, big business, and everyone who conspired to divert attention from government and private sector failures, my husband's life was priceless, and I will not let his death be meaningless. My silence cannot be bought. Eckert also lobbied the government for reform of U.S. intelligence. In February 2009, she actually met with President Obama to discuss the closing of Guantanamo Bay Prison, which he later reneged on. A week after she met with Obama, once again, she died in a plane crash. 
like 9-11, in which her husband had died, her plane crash was the result of negligence and procedural failure, and possibly even more. Contributors at Let's Roll 911 had in- independently discovered that 9-11 body count had been inflated to Pearl Harbor levels by zombie victims. And since the zombie victims had no genuine families or documentation, very few of them came forward to claim compensation. Given the work Eckhart had done among families of 9-11 victims, she probably could have gathered a lot of evidence on this issue. And it's possibly that she naively bought into the hope change jazz that we all think about, and she disclosed what she knew to Obama, and Obama knew that she had to be silenced. I am not a fan of Keith Olbermann, uh, but he did a great job honoring Beverly Eckert, so I'm going to play this clip. Late last night, the second shift at a hospital in Buffalo was told to stay where it was. There had been a plane crash. The hospital would need all hands on deck to care for the wounded as they came pouring through the doors. It was the same alert with the same hope that had doctors and nurses on standby throughout Manhattan on September 11, 2001. In our fourth story tonight, then as now, the doctors stood idle. The nurses waited in vain. Continental Airlines Flight 3407 crashed just outside Buffalo at about 10.20 last night. As a nurse told the Buffalo, New York News, there were no souls to bring in. All 49 people on board and one more on the ground dead, all of them lives worth remembering, worth celebrating. But one of them was a life intertwined with the life of her nation. Beverly Eckert was flying to Buffalo because that's where she and her husband, her late husband, Sean Rooney, had met. She was flying to Buffalo to celebrate what would have been his 58th birthday. Sean Rooney died on September 11, 2001, in the South Tower of the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan, talking to his wife on his cell phone as he tried to get out. After his death, Beverly founded Voices of September 11th, appearing among other venues on this news hour in pursuit of her missions, proper memorials, commissions, protections against future failed intelligence. Just last week, she met with President Obama, with other 9-11 family members, and family of those killed by al-Qaeda aboard the USS Cole in 2000. Today, President Obama recalled one of the things that gave her life meaning and drew a lesson from the painful circumstances of her death. Tragic events such as these remind us of the fragility of life and the value of every single day. One person who understood that well was Beverly Eckert, who was on that flight and who I met with just a few days ago. You see, Beverly lost her husband on 9-11 and became a tireless advocate for those families whose lives were forever changed on that September day. Nor was Mr. Obama alone in hearing the voices of September 11th, championed by Beverly Eckert. The former junior senator from New York, now America's Secretary of State, also remembered her today as more than an advocate, more than a voice. She was one of the principal champions of the idea of the creation of the 9-11 Commission. I will miss her, and um, I want to just publicly thank her for all she did in the midst of her own tragedy. As you've doubtless heard, Flight 3407 struck the ground in Clarence Center, New York, six miles away from the plane's intended destination. Air traffic control lost contact with the flight minutes before the crash. No indication of anything out of the ordinary. No mayday call from the pilot nor crew. Landing gear in place. Flames engulfed the wreckage, the crash site burning off the excess jet fuel. An eyewitness reported hearing a loud boom followed by several more explosions that went on for 10 minutes. The NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, today retrieving 3407's black boxes to determine why. Reporting this afternoon that other flights in the area experienced significant ice buildup and the crew inside that flight was talking about that as well.
Uh, listening to Clinton and Obama, trying not to laugh when they were talking about her. You can just see the no authenticity in their voice and a forced somberness. Such a joke. Folks, the odds <clears throat> of dying in, in, in an airplane crash is like one in 11 million. And how many have we talked about today, folks? There's no such thing as a coincidence. These people were murdered, for God's sake. Last one we're going to talk about today, Deborah Jean Palfrey, the D.C. madam who led a high-end prostitution ring. Now, <clears throat> Palfrey started singing, not singing la-la-la, as in telling. She mentioned prior knowledge of 9-11 being ignored. She had some clients. Wayne Madsen believes that she was probably referring to one of her clients, Jack Abramoff who was uh, uh, entertaining two alleged 9-11 hijackers on his casino boat. Palfrey allegedly committed suicide on May 1st, 2008. However, Alex Jones was so certain that she would be killed that while he was interviewing her on a show, he said, would you even consider it? And she said no. And, and to note, her suicide note was not in her handwriting. Many people have stated that. This is Alex Jones on the death of the D.C. madam, Deborah Jean Palfrey. What exactly do you think happened to the D.C. madam? Do you think she committed suicide? She told me on air she would never commit suicide, and then she told me off air, I pressed her off air during the breaks, uh, and I talked to her a few times, also not just on the radio, but at her home, over the phone, and she said, that's ridiculous. I'll never kill myself. I am being followed. You know, they might try to kill me. Then I talked to Wayne Madsen, who's an investigative journal in D.C., and I've talked to uh, two of her lawyers. And uh, on record, she said, if I'm killed, I want an investigation. If they say it's suicide, it's murder. So we have her lawyers. We have another investigative journalist that met with her at dinner with the lawyers as a witness to this, who I've known for years before this happened, who I trust, Wayne Madsen. And then we have, uh, you know, all these other people she talked to, like... The manager of the condominiums where she lived in Florida, she said, okay, I'm going to pay for six months. I'm going to send you another check. I'm going to be in about five to six years. I'm going to be out. Uh, God is going to put pressure on my mother, but I'm going to go visit her before I have to go into jail and leave some papers there for safekeeping. And then she hung herself in her mother's shed, which would totally freak her mother out. And, and, and everybody that knew her, she, she was really ladylike and you know, uh, really into uh, her etiquette. I mean, she would never do that to her mother. And then some crime reporter who there's no evidence she ever talked to, who's been known for putting out disinfo, comes out and says, oh, she told me she'd commit suicide before she went to jail. So that's the only witness they have, and it's not on tape. I have her on my show on tape. Uh, and so the bottom line is she knew who the clients were, and she had told others that it was Dick Cheney, but she'd done that off record. She was like, she would say on the phone to me, just leave me alone, guys. I just wanted to move to Germany. You know, uh, I don't know why you're doing this to me. And, and, and I advised her on air and off. I said, listen, you need to go ahead and release all this now. And I said, and don't tell anybody you're going to release it. Just come on the air and do it with somebody or they're going to kill you. And um, she just, she was getting ready to write a tell-all book. You can't do that. You know, they'd ruined her. I know she needed money to live on. And uh, I think she was a really nice lady. Uh, it's just uh, dead men or dead women tell no tales. So that's why she told me that they were, you know, that, that, that if she died, it would be murder. How do you think Scott McClellan got away with writing his book? 
Well, Scott McClellan comes from a very powerful family, and in a way, the book is somewhat apologetic. Like, it sounds like it's an extreme, but it's really kind of a whitewash in a way. And also, you have a larger power structure above the Bushes, you know, kind of the global corporate state, and they're not happy with some of the things the neocons have done. They've really uh, torn things up and discredited the state a lot. Uh, so Bush is somewhat of a puppet for the global corporate system, and so they don't mind him being drugged through the ringer. But they don't want something like prostitutes with the vice president and with defense secretaries coming out in the news. They do not want that. What exactly do you think happened? And there you go. Uh, if you remember, <clears throat> Dick Cheney was tied to that lady. So uh, I guess literally and figuratively. <clears throat> folks, I think my voice is done. I got to pause here. There are some other folks uh, whose lives were affected by this by coming out. Um, Susan, uh, I think it was Lindauer. She was a CIA operative who gave advance warnings about 9-11. After 9-11, she became one of the first non-Arab Americans to be arrested under the Patriot Act. She was actually charged with being an Iraqi agent. About 10 years later, charges were dropped. That's what's so terrible about the Patriot Act. She was a CIA whistleblower, and they just locked her away, threw away the key for almost a decade. They ruined her life. Um, even Charlie Sheen, we all know if he had the messes, but he was also one of the first big names to come out and say, uh, to question the 9-11 narrative, and, and he had his life turned upside down. Uh, everyone from his ex-spouses to co-stars turned on him. Cynthia McKinney, congresswoman who fiercely joined the 9-11 Truth Movement, March 29th, 2006, there was an incident in which she was prevented from entering Capitol Hill. The resulting scuffle was used to discredit her. Since then, she is no longer a congresswoman. The infamous Rosie O'Donnell clip, March 2007, where she started rambling about 9-11. Two months later, she was kicked off. I think she was brought back a decade later. Was it 2014, 2015 for a short, brief time? But that cost her her career. Seibel Edmonds, a Turkish language translator for the FBI, was fired in August 2002 after revealing the FBI had prior knowledge of 9-11. Richard Andrew Grove. In 2000, Grove was an employee of Silverstream Software. He discovered that Silverstream was overbilling their biggest client, Martian Lennon, by nearly $7 million. He was fired and was told to keep quiet, not just by his employer, but also by those he confided to at Martian McLennan. He was then invited by Martian McLennan to present his evidence at their office on the 98th floor of the World Trade Center on the morning of 9-11. Can you believe that? They set Richard up. He got caught in traffic. He's alive because of that. But they set him up to be killed. They they invited him to the 98th floor of the World Trade Center. You can't make this stuff up. J. Michael Springman, who worked for the visa section of the U.S. consulate in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, he discovered that the consulate was being used to funnel bin Laden operatives into the United States for training. Fifteen of the 9-11 hijackers got the U.S. visas through the consulate. He also discovered that the head of the consulate was overturning his denial for visas for unqualified applicants. His contract with the State Department was not uh, renewed after the complaint. Uh, A British soccer player by the name of Nathan Eccleston. 
who was under investigation by Liverpool, the football club, for a September 11th tweet that said, I ain't going to say, don't let the media make you believe that it was a terrorist that did it. Otis, which is short for only the Illuminati succeed. (laughs) And Tony Farrell, the principal intelligence analyst for South Yorkshire Police, was fired in July 2011 for stating that 9-11 and the July 7th London bombing were most likely inside jobs. And that's something that we need to do one day. Uh, Look at that London bombing. I remember... uh, I want to say I was in my second tour of Iraq when that happened. Um, So to to kind of wrap things up, listen, folks, the leaders of this country, you know, we, we like to play the, we are free card, but our, our country can be just every bit as dangerous, dangerous as dictatorships and middle Eastern monarchies. Uh, If you happen to be on the bad books of the cabal, but at the same time, uh, people tend to dance along denial, right? The show must go on. I got to go to work tomorrow. Why do I bother? We, the people listening to the show and myself, we're always going to be the minority. We're the ones that get looked at crazy by our family members, right? Is it unlikely that the powers that be will ever encounter real resistance? Probably not. Why? We have the numbers. Why do we continue to let these people roll over us? Has it always been like this? Is it because the indoctrination? Because they keep us uh, young and dumb? They, you know, the, 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 the education, right? How many people even know how, you know, we talked about the Fed the other day. How many people really know how the Fed operates? A good starting point is to take into consideration how many American society is sociologically different. Let's say a murder were to happen in a simplistic tribal society in some remote region of Afghanistan. Uh, The village elders would gather, and within a day or two, a decision would be made on either retribution or compensation, depending on what the victim's family wanted. In Western society, there are no village elders. And even if they are not rotting in retirement homes, their role in society is limited strictly to economic potential. We just are continually ruled by the powers that be. Justice is outsourced to institutions that are dominated by secret societies. Our societies failed. Because this massive cloak of deception, um, you know, it's just difficult. Where do we go? How do we how do we fight back? Um, the implications are so dangerous for the remainder of the world. What what if Osama bin Laden never made the decision to move to Afghanistan and instead moved to Orange County? <laughs> Right? Nine <clears throat> eleven um, cover up victim Hunter Thompson was quoted as saying, I'm afraid that we're raising a generation of dancers. Um, this was the reference to America's present day youth. The statement was immortalized in the lyrics by the killers, 
Residents of dictatorships and theocracies can be conditioned to accept tyranny through fear and coercion. That, I mean, that cannot be stated anymore. On the other hand, Thompson's dancers need no fear or coercion. They can be conditioned through the dance for their cabal. And in doing so, they even outdo the residents and dictatorships and theocracies uh, in subversions. Those that refuse to dance are regularly weeded out, just like the victims of the 9-11 cover-up. The general apathy towards victims of the 9-11 cover-up only strengthens the argument that instead of a balanced human society, many of us have become dancers for the undocumented cabals. Hopefully not everybody is dancing. It's time to take a stand, stop dancing, and uh, we have to hold people who are accountable, who abuse the democracy of this republic. And every episode we seem to do leads back to the CIA, the Rothschilds, and the Rockefellers. Our next episode will focus on the Bilderberg Group, how they too have their uh, stranglehold on society, and then we will talk about... um, Oh, heck, what was the other one? My brain is so racked right now. Anyway, we have two more episodes. Um, and then we need to start talking about uh, a way forward. How do we untie ourselves um, from, the, uh, from the banking industry, right? The Bilderberg Group, the CFR, uh, all these groups that um, truly uh, run the world. Uh, at some point, we have to come up with a plan. We have to undo ourselves the trilateral commissions i knew it would come to me if i uh <laughs> if i st- uh if if i uh, thought about it long enough the trilateral commission we talked about the cfr uh, next episode will be the bilderberg meetings the bilderberg group and then the trilateral commission how they run everything from the media to big tech and how they control your thoughts your minds uh, and even educations so we're going to get into who writes your school books mcgraw hill uh, is owned by a huge uh, oligarch group um, that that is tied directly to to the elitists, the NWOs of this world. Um, and indoctrination is about memorizing and repeat, and critical thinking is out the door. Uh, I have rambled quite long enough trying to close this show up. Uh, it's time to hang it up for today. Tomorrow we'll be working on our new website and our new logo. And probably in the next episode, it'll come up as the fact hunter. Um, Move away from the conspiracy world and more on the truth and facts. Thank you all for your support. I am George Hobbs. Until next time, make sure you guys stay vigilant, keep your eyes open, and keep fighting for the truth. God bless. Thanks for listening to the show. Remember to check out DelmarvaStudios.net for 24-7 streaming content and great videos to both entertain and educate you. Follow us on Twitter at DelmarvaStudios. Email your questions, comments, concerns, advertising requests, or join the show to DelmarvaStudios.mail.com. Thanks again for listening, and remember, question everything.
You're listening to DelmarvaStudios.net. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.